Hi, I'm Barry Hamaguchi. And I'm Jason Marcos. This is Flop Redeemer, the podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why you should give these songs a second chance. Rock band Paramore broke through with their 2007 single Misery Business, and lead singer Haley Williams was once lauded by John Mayer as, quote, the great orange hope. In 2017, the band released their fifth studio album, After Laughter, featuring a newish sound with a newish lineup into a pop musical landscape that had grown increasingly unfriendly towards rock music in the preceding decade. Today we're talking about the lead single from that effort, the disco new wave Fantasia, Hard Times. Disco new wave Fantasia. That's totally from that Bowen Yang, um, Titanic iceberg. <laughs> uh skit from weekend update on snl disco fantasia mm-hmm, or something mm-hmm. um so anyway uh off air i established that i am even more unprepared for today's episode than perhaps any other episode in the history of this podcast so i'm really making great progress buckle in and pack a lunch readers or listeners yes yes um I'm, I'm i'm a little bit scared because we're talking about paramore today we're talking about a rock band i feel like if you're a fan of paramore you're going to be really really disappointed in me um for my lack of preparation because i have this like image of what paramore is in my head that may not actually be based in reality um we were talking about this beforehand it's 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 your i mean look that's the thing about music right like we all we have our own relationship to artists like there are communities where of fans where there's a shared sort of understanding of who they are and then there's also you know everyone can kind of project and bring what they bring to it right or what they see in it Yeah, this is fully my outsider perception of Paramore. I'm not a fan of Paramore, generally speaking. Um, I know their hits. I feel like most people, you'll recognize Mm -hmm. a Paramore song when you hear, when you hear the song Misery Business, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I I know that song. I didn't necessarily know who sang that song or why I know this song, but the song was like ubiquitous in 2007. It's very like um, guys with long greasy bangs over their eyes, warped tour uh type of vibes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i mean i'm kind of the same i mean you you know them more than i do i mean i i bring very much that sort of pop understanding of them like meaning i know them in the pop culture i've heard the songs to your point i don't know what they're called right like i like (laughs) you know and and that's that, you don't know what their songs. I don't are know called. what the songs are called, right? Like okay, no, right. I know who the band is, and I know you know, generally speaking, I I know them, but um, and I don't dislike them. I think, uh, I have a personal. There's someone in my life who loves them, and I, <laughs> and because of this person, I've ignored Paramore. That's my own. Well, that's fault. the funny thing. That's the funny thing too for me is that I. I being in touch with them on a pop cultural level, I'd always had this like weird feeling about Paramore. I didn't know what quite what to make of them. I feel like there was always a subset of um, like, is Paramore a Christian band kind of sentiment? Mm-hmm. Um, which their music is not Christian music. You know, like they don't market or release their music as Christian music. It doesn't. I think in general, most of their hits don't have like Christian undertones. Mm-hmm. Like the song Misery Business. I also like um, the Spotify wrapped this year for me. You know, the Spotify wrapped did that aura. Mm-hmm. It gave you your musical aura. My one of my musical auras was like bravado. Oh, wow. And I was like really surprised by that. I don't I don't think of Mine myself as it's like bravado. Yeah, and I was like, bravado. But uh, Misery Business, I feel like that's a song about bravado. Yeah, I mean, I generally think of this kind of music as sort of, you know, we talk about rock music. It's about bravado, and I think that that's kind of one of the key aspects that pushes me away, which is interesting because I like I like other things. I like divas and stuff, which isn't like bravado, but there's a strength there. There's a, and you know, sometimes a, I don't know. It's just a different way. It's a. I think of bravado as like masculine energy versus like feminine energy. Yeah. Well, bravado is like saying like I'm the shit, mm-hmm. versus like I feel like divas more often say I have overcome this hardship, 
And now I am truly great because I was I'm a survivor. Because I overcame yeah. it. Yeah. Survivor vibes versus like uh, King of the World yeah. vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Hard fought queendom. Yeah. <laughs> Not this unearned, um, unearned bravado yeah. stuff. Well, anyway. shall we get started? Maybe, maybe we just go to break and then we can get started because we have a lot to cover. Do we? Uh, I mean, we I do. Know, Barry. We can. Well, oh God, Jason. I'm such a disaster when it comes to this. Let's just keep, let's just, yeah, take us away. We'll come back. I'll re, I'll regroup, recenter, and I'll tell you all about Paramore. Okay. Well, as always, songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and check us out on social media at flopredeemer on Instagram and Twitter, and at facebook.com slash flopredeemer. And as always, email us at flopredeemer at gmail.com with your points, tips, suggestions, critiques, Anything you might want, we'll definitely review it. Let's go to break. I'm debating like cutting. So I turned on my Spotify. I haven't listened to anything yet. And my, can you hear the fan? Hold on. I can't. Let me turn off. No, like your mic is so, okay. your mic is so quiet. Because I can hear it here and I can hear every like creak of my chair and stuff. And so. Oh, okay. no. Your mic is, your mic is much better than mine. My mic picks up every like shift of my toes. You can hear my toes moving. Wait, what was I watching? And, and they sang, <laughs> they, the person was singing and it was this microphone. And I was like, I told I, Adam, I was like, I could sound like that. He was like, well, Billie Eilish uses this micro, your microphone. No, I mean, even from like way back, I was. Michael Jackson recorded Thriller on the Shure SM7B. Right. Not that you. Not that I want to be Michael Jackson. Do we talk about Michael Jackson? Yeah, we do. He's influential. Okay. Okay. All right. So we are back. We are back. And today we're talking about Paramore, as I stated previously. Um, Jason does not know much about Paramore, so I'm happy to fill in the fill in the blanks. Sure for you so um and a lot of this is just pop cultural knowledge that i have in my head i'm trying to just be as accurate as possible Mm -hmm. but no promises no promises so paramore forms in like 2004 and these are like really young kids i think Haley williams who's the lead singer of paramore was like 13 or 14 and what happens is that Haley williams moves from like mississippi she moves to tennessee and she's 13 years old. And in the in this mix of like homeschooled kids, she meets the Farrow brothers. She meets uh Josh and Zach Farrow. And I don't I don't understand homeschooling really. Like I guess that there is some kind of in-person component where you kind of socialize all these homeschooled kids together. Yeah. Yeah, it's so that so that they have like some because you know one of the main critiques about homeschooling is that you have a lack of socialization, and so these groups a lot of times like when you're doing homeschooling, you can kind of join with a group where you share similar curriculum or um, mm-hmm. you know like schedules, so that like the kids can still get together and do like field trips and things like that, but they go back to their home environment for schooling. It'll be okay. a, a topic for another episode to let you know how I know about <laughs> this. Okay. But, um, I mean, it, it's a way of like socializing your kids, but making sure that the kids they're socializing with are per- parent, parent approved. Well, it's, I guess. it's, it's, they're, they're you, you in the, the same, same, they're in the same culture, right? Like in same sort yeah. of ethos, yeah. they ascribe to like home school, home-based learning as yeah, 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 yeah. ideal unclear why all this is happening i don't know if this is because they are all devout christians but also at this time 13 year old Haley williams has a record deal Mm -hmm. so Haley williams um is signed to atlantic records um as a solo artist in the process of meeting up with the pharaoh brothers and some of their other friends through this homeschooling program um the pharaoh brothers have a band and uh josh pharaoh he plays the guitar. Zach Farrow plays the drums. At this point in time, Zach Farrow, I think, is like 12 years old. Very young. I didn't realize they were that young. Um, I mean, I knew they were young. Well, they don't... No. Yeah, yeah. They don't end up releasing big-time music for a okay. few years. But at the time when they're getting together and they're all meeting in um, 
forming this band. Um, Haley Williams has her own deal. The Farrell brothers have their group of friends that they also have a band with, you know, according to kind of the mythology of this time, like there was a little bit of resistance about actually letting Haley Williams into the band because they didn't know, they felt a little weird about having like a girl in the band basically, Mm. because rock music, not the most hospitable place for women. But they end up, you know, foregoing their misgivings and then they form this band. They named the band Paramore reportedly after, I think it's one of the, like, one of the members' mother's maiden names or based on one of the mother's maiden's names. And at the time, like, they didn't even know what a Paramore Hmm. was, like the the term Paramore. But they decided, they found out what Paramore was and they liked it. So they went with it. Why they changed the name, they changed the spelling? Unclear. All of this is unclear. I mean, this is just a group of teenagers in, in Tennessee just putting stuff together um so once they get this rock band formed um they sign a different record deal and this becomes a big deal later when the lineup of the band starts to Mm -hmm. shift and there's this interpersonal conflict that kind of disrupts the continuity of the band itself but they get signed to a label called fueled by ramen and fueled by ramen um for a whole period of the 2000s was big for bands like um i think jimmy eat world was mm-hmm. on field by ramen but like in the later 2000s they would get like panic at the disco and um fallout boy and gym class heroes so like i i have a definite association with the type of music that i think of as fueled by ramen music mm-hmm. but basically at the time that paramore was forming their record label kind of strategically felt like it would be a better look for them as a rock band to be signed to a label that appeared to have like indie credibility. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. That out the gate, that out the gate for a major label like Atlantic or a Warner Warner Records or something like that to be signing this group of teenagers to try and become like a legitimate rock band was like a bad look. So they get signed to Fueled by Ramen while Haley Williams herself is actually still signed as a solo artist to Atlantic. Mm. So after Paramore is signed to Fueled by Ramen, they get a string of pretty successful crossover pop hits. So these are songs like Misery Mm -hmm. Business, the song Still Into You, the song Ain't It Fun. And that takes you from like 2007 to 2014 with the band. What's happening behind the scenes with the band that whole time, and it's happening pretty publicly because the band has like a live journal. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This is like this like prime live journal era. There's a lot of interpersonal drama that's unfolding in the band itself throughout this Mm -hmm. time. So between 2007 misery business and 2014 with ain't it fun, like the band has undergone like a complete lineup change. Okay. Including quite notably by 2014, the two founding brothers, Josh and Zach Farrow have very publicly left the band. And in addition, posted some acrimonious statements online. And this is, um, served to like undercut Haley Williams' reputation, um, because one of the things that they do talk about in in the time that they leave the band in 2011 is that the entire time um, Haley Williams has been like manufactured to be a rock artist. Like she was supposed to be a pop star. She had a pop um, record deal when she was 13, and this whole idea of her as a rock star is manufactured. Mm. It's all fake. But nonetheless, um, they continue to have hits all the way up to 2014's Ain't It Fun. When they reemerge in 2017, there's a lot of excitement from fans because in kind of behind the scenes looks at the recording process, people notice that Zach Farrow is in pictures in the recording studio. And so this fuels a lot of speculation that Either Zach or Josh, the Farrow brothers, are back in the band. Zach Farrow clarifies that he's there for the recording, but he's not an official member of the band. This is later updated to be like, surprise, he actually is back with the band. And so messy. <laughs> it's it's very confusing. And I, I don't know if this has to do with like what happens with this song. But basically, this song comes out. Hard Times, it's the lead single from After Laughter. My recollection of this song is that first of all, it didn't get the type of pop crossover that a lot of their previous songs had. Most notably, the single that directly preceded this, which was Ain't It Fun in 2014. 
but also like to me this song sounded completely different i never would have recognized this song as a paramore song if someone hadn't told me same uh, I, i'm i'm you in this scenario because you sent me this song uh you know that you were going to do it and i was like wait i like this song and it's not that i don't like other paramore songs but i think you know you talk about like who they were from 2007 to 2014 like it felt very angsty teen like rock like that sort of genre of rock never resonated with me like you can at all smell you can smell the hair when yeah, the hair, the eyeliner, the 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 Avril Lavigne like sock on the arm, the straight. You know what I mean? Like the, the Avril Lavigne of it all, the the newfound glory of it all. I know she was married <laughs> to him, you know, at one point, but you know, it's that sort of thing which never was never my thing. And I think part of that is too, like as a teenager, I was never an angsty teen. I was a moody teen, maybe. <laughs> I was a hopeless romantic teen, like pining in my room, but like not like angsty do you know what i mean so yeah. like even like avril lavigne and stuff like i liked avril you know but it, i never went out and bought an album or anything i wasn't <laughs> gonna go on tour like that that ship had sailed for me by that point in time and so like this kind of music always seemed a little i, I don't i don't mean this to sound dismissive it felt juvenile in the sense that like I, it did not relate to me like the these kind of like yeah. Even no matter how musical it was. Sneering right? sneering teenagers in their garages. Yeah, it was just not for me as a mid twenties person at that point, you know? <laughs> um so this song Hard Times comes out and whether or not this is a flop, that is like one thing to consider. In my mind, this song has always been a flop just because I feel like you never really heard it in as much as you heard other Paramore songs on the radio. Um that said, it still like was a top ten alternative. Hmm music chart song however like my basis for this being a flop is that in contrast to like their top 10 hit ain't it fun coming out in 2014 hard times barely cracked the billboard hot 100 and it peaked at number 90 that's interesting to me because it's you know you put together a playlist around this song and 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 i listened to it i listened to it with along with other songs that i think you felt were related or, or had some sort of connection to it and i liked all of them yeah. and i wouldn't have thought of it as rock so it, it does feel more poppy so it's interesting that it didn't do anything on the like it, you, you know as far as crossing over like it well didn't resonate to be like, fair and, and you'll see this in the playlist that i compose i, I kind of put, composed a playlist to contextualize this song with other songs that i also like and amongst those songs were songs like you've changed by sia or like um i think there was like a couple larue songs on There's there a, yeah, uptight downtown by larue you have bad love by the aces yeah none of these songs that i paired this particular song with are hits are really mainstream hits either but i think that whereas artists like sia or artists like larue or the aces they have a certain level of i don't want to say like indie credibility but like for lack of a better term indie credibility like i think it's hard for a band like paramore to try and reverse engineer that type of musical credibility after a decade of being known for a particular type of music yeah to be sort of like a smaller cutting edge pop almost like avant-garde pop, edgy synth pop at the time, like what was coming out as sort of indie pop. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's like you're transitioning from being this huge thing into something more niche. And it's interesting because, you know, you said like none of these other songs were really like huge hits, but, you know, it's again, it's that sort of moving definition of what's a hit, right? It's like, I know these songs. Yeah. And like, they sort of define the landscape, maybe like kind of, in aggregate, right? They they all collectively help shift what we think of as pop and blended yeah. pop and rock together. So yeah, I mean they 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 were still very dominant, I would say. And the thing is, like with pop music, it's a continually moving target. Pop music is defined as like the music of youth culture, and you know, the people who are youths are constantly changing. And when it comes to a genre like rock music, I think that there's a certain stubbornness to change from rock music that makes it almost antithetical to remaining 
pop for very long. Like I think that once you're once you're established as a rock band and you have credibility as a rock band, there's a certain expectation about what your music will sound like like in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of range given in terms of evolving your music. I feel like when you're a rock musician, just because there are so many subgenres of rock that are so strictly defined by fans that to, you know, stray from that formula mm-hmm. in any way, even if it's after a decade of making music, it can seem like a huge betrayal to fans to be like, why are you selling out? Why are you you know, changing your music when, you know, I feel like in other genres, there's maybe more of an ability to evolve over time to keep up with like the current state of your music. Yeah. With pop, there's an expectation that the sound is updated. Yeah. And I think with pop music, there is, well, one, you know, when you think of perennial pop artists that make pure pop music. I think that there is a little more leeway given to those artists in terms of evolving over time. When I think of like, when I think of like a Rihanna, for example, and the amount of leeway that she has in terms of exploring different sounds, depending upon, you know, what sounds are kind of current. She doesn't always have to be making, you know, Ponda replay. Mm hmm. For a decade, you know? I I think a lot of that has to do with what rock aficionados consider pop music to be, which is less authentic than rock, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that going back to like the origins of rock music, rock fans have always thought of pop as being more commercial and, and, and adapting to the trends is kind of cast as inauthenticity, right? Or like a lack of like a, a guiding line sometimes, right? That yeah. Like, you know, it's, 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 you're, you know, you're being commercial. You're going with what, you know, it's, it's like, you're not being a real artist. And I think that that plays into everything you're talking about here because it's, it's, you know, pop artists by that definition are not, they're not as authentic, authentically, like authentic yeah. to themselves, whatever that might be. And yeah. so that, so when you're thinking about a paramore, like, you know, people who really identified with that and especially if you come of age with that and that's the it it, you know even at the time it was sort of like it was angsty right it was like that sneer you said it was like sneering teens in their garage right there's a certain attitude you associate with that and when you take the sneer away you know sneering is it's, it's such a posture in and of itself Right. That like, and it you can really identify with that sort of stance, that sort of not cynical stance, but like adversarial stance, adversarial stance to everything that's happening. Like you go, even if the the content of the music is the same, if the vibe is more pop, you might feel betrayed. <laughs> it's It's interesting because, you know, you talked about like the origins of rock music, but like when you think about, rock music in the fifties emerging as a type of pop music. Like you think about like little Richard Mm -hmm. as like, you know, or an originator of rock music and then Elvis Presley as like rock music. It originated as a form of popular music. And it's not until like, I want to say like the late sixties and to the early seventies that like rock diverges from pop music. Like and the two suddenly become identified as two separate things where I think you have things like girl groups of the sixties that are more increasingly defined as pop music. And then you have rock bands that are considered more like music, tr- like quote unquote true musicians. Mm-hmm. Well, they consider that, themselves that right. I and, mean, I think, too, I, and I think, and I think that that division, that divide, that distinction is really interesting when they all kind of have the same origin of kind of just being a type of music for youth that runs counter to what had been traditionally considered as like proper music, if that makes sense. Okay. Like that's what I think of as like the origin of rock music, right? Mm -hmm. Great. Like rock music was so controversial from the outset because it represented this countercultural view Mm -hmm. of what music should be for, Mm -hmm. for youth culture. So what about this song then? Like when this song came out, first of all, like I 
could not identify this as a Paramore song. It's to me sounds very, very different from mm-hmm. the music that we were used to hearing from Paramore, at least as like not hardcore fans. Mm-hmm. To me, I would identify this as like a disco song. This has like a strong four on the floor beat. It has this really strong bass line to it. And the tempo of it is like a dance tempo. I think for me, when I think of a lot of rock music, rock music is a little bit faster. It has more of like what I would think of as like a headbanging tempo, which is slightly Mm -hmm. faster than you could actually dance to. Mm -hmm. Whereas like disco music is solidly danceable. Like you could do a step touch, step touch to this type of music, right? Mm-hmm. Interestingly, like I was watching some reaction videos on YouTube to people listening to this song for the first time when it came out in 2017. And a lot of fans of the band were hard defending them against claims that this was a very drastically different sound for them. A lot mm-hmm. of Paramore fans were like, oh no, like I totally think this sounds like a Paramore song. And in a lot of ways it does, but in a lot of key ways, I really think it's very different. And I think it's actually those differences that make me enjoy this song because what really gets me with this song though, is that it pairs two like very key components of my life. It's in the script. I don't know if you're <laughs> no, I'm reading. I'm looking at it. That's why yeah. I'm, I'm excited. So, and this is, this is why I love this song because this is a song that is up tempo. It's dancey. It's joyous. It can make you just like, dance your ass off but it's about how shitty life is and those are like two key components of my life that is definitely something that that is for you i mean we talked to we've we've had episodes about that like multiple songs i so i get it now i get it now you put it that way i'm like okay i see how this came to you it's funny i i've been told on multiple occasions in my life that i remind people of um the rachel drash character from snl Debbie Downer. I was going to say Eeyore. (laughs) Um, Because I have a penchant for these kind of like sad trombone like topics in life. And, you know, I think that there's a time and a place where I want sad trombone things to happen in a sad trombone way. So like my key for that is like, um, I used to listen to the Kelly Clarkson song because of you. And I would cry in my car but I would do it because my contact lenses were dried out <laughs> and I would need a, I would need a quick and organic way without eye drops handy for me to like re-wet my contact lenses. Psychotic. <laughs> so I'd sit in my car. I would turn on because of you by Kelly Clarkson, which is a sad song that sounds like a sad song, but sometimes, and this is where hard times by Paramore comes in. Sometimes when you're feeling down, but you don't have the time to be down you need a song that will artificially like amp you up. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. It's a good way of putting it. While allowing yourself to continue to feel down about life, but to have a driving beat and a funk bass line to kind of reanimate the lifeless corpse, the lifeless husk. <laughs> so you can weaken Bernie, weakened at Bernie's it through whatever you're doing. Yeah. This is like a trend in my life, right? Is like using music as a way to compel myself to continue um, functioning as a human being. This happens a lot at work. Not to speak ill of my work or my job, because I just think it's not my job. It's just jobs in general. That sometimes you reach a lull where you're like, I want to slump over at my desk and just put my head down. Right? Mm-hmm. Raise it, re- relatable content? Come on. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you don't have the luxury to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's where a song like Hard Times will come into play. I mean, I think that's a perfect description of this. <laughs> because it... Yeah, because I agree with you. Because I, I couldn't put my my finger on like why I liked it too. But it is the danciness of it. And I don't associate Paramore with like dancing for me that is not the way i like to dance now i have seen (laughs) people dance to the like that more punky like running around almost like mosh pity like pushing each other and shit yeah not for me that was maybe i did i i loved ska when i was in high school like i like um went to you know uh what do you call warp tour did all of that you went to warped tour i did i did i saw mxpx and G- not Jimmy Eat World. Less than Jake? 
I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, there were a bunch of people there. Uh, Hepcat. Um, I'm old. It was at a polo field. Um, but no, I mean, it's, it's, I get it. Like, cause, cause that's why this resonates with me more than anything else they've ever done. And, and, and also, like, I like that kind of, of, of pop as well. Yeah. You know? Especially now, I feel like we're kind of in a, in a, in a, a golden age of sad, danceable pop. <laughs> Because, because, like by na- by the nature of the of this music, like call it new wave, call it whatever, the synths, the 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 beats, the just the production, it's bright, right? Like it makes you feel good. I think that the interesting thing about this song, kind of popularly being categorized as new wave, is that like to me, like there's some there's like a, a conga in the beginning. There's a marimba to the beginning of this song. And then what's most notable to me is like the disco bass line and the almost complete lack of a guitar line. Like in contrast to most of their music prior to this, the song has an auspicious lack of guitar to it. Mm-hmm. That makes it register to me as like a pure disco song. Mm-hmm. Pure... I, I, you know, and that it takes it out of the rock realm, right? Because rock, yeah, is typically with a guitar. And I was thinking about it. I was like, I wonder if that had anything to do with, you know, the lackluster performance of this song. Is that in my mind, like disco and dance music are antithetical to rock music in a lot of ways. Um, on a total tangent for this episode, I was thinking about like you know, what are the precedents for rock artists trying to make danceable music? And I was like looking at all these, like, like the best one that I found was like Kiss doing, um, I was made for loving you. Hmm. Is that where these like, cause you have super tramp in here. Yeah, You'll see it on the playlist. Like I had just been compiling a list of like, okay, who are the bands that were able to make, quote unquote disco music in a time when the animosity between rock music and disco music was reaching like a fever pitch, like into the late seventies. Like I was reading about, um, cause I have this solid memory about like the year that the moment the disco died and there was like mm-hmm. the disco demolition. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Yeah. We've and talked about that here. Like it was like, there's a racial component to it. And have we talked about homophobic. it here? I thought we have, I mean, I thought we've mentioned it on things or maybe I've just been well, watching too many like, uh, Bee Gees documentaries and shit, but maybe, I mean, it's shown I re- up a couple times. I remember, I, cause I remember, you know, I feel like we grew up in the eighties when disco was already dead. It was like a popular refrain. Disco's dead. But there was this actual rebellion against disco music by fans of rock music, which culminated in this event um, in Chicago where a radio DJ had made a promotion where I think people could get discounted tickets for this baseball game in exchange for bringing a disco record. And they were going to blow up this heap of disco records in the middle of the field. And the whole event ended in a riot where all the people like stormed the field. I think that the home team had to forfeit the game. Well, it was like, <laughs> it was a Cubs event? game, wasn't it? Yeah. Was, yeah. Was, wasn't that the or was it White Sox? I think it was White One Sox. Of them, yeah. But they had to forfeit the game because the promotion was just so violent and ended in a riot. Like people were throwing records onto the field from the stands and then they set them all on fire. It was a fiasco, but very symbolic in that era where I think that the relationship between rock music as like quote unquote real music made by real musicians versus disco and dance music, which was manufactured, which was soulless, which was, you know, quote unquote, just like not real had, had well, reached this yeah. like fever pitch, you know? Well, and, 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 you know, more recent examinations of that have really looked at who was popular in terms of rock and who was seen of as legitimate rock stars and who did disco elevate, right? Disco was very popular in the nightclubs where it was like a lot more diverse. You had a lot more diversity in terms of disco artists, um, including queer artists, right? And so you're talking about like predominantly people of color and queer people, you know, kind of propelling disco forward. Like, you know, you have the Sylvester's, you have um, 
you know, it's it just the the other undertones that 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 like add to why was rock music real and what is this soft other music, right? Like, and and it's so toxic that like by the time you get to the eighties, to your point about like sort of dancey, rocky, they're not calling it disco; they're calling it new wave or synth pop. Um, and even now we don't say disco because disco still has like a a sort of tarnished image. We're we're mm-hmm. only recently starting to acknowledge that like what we really like is disco. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the thing, right? It's like you're, to your point about this song, it is disco, but we can't say it because of that day in 1970 in the <laughs> 1970s, 1980s um where they killed it and it's still like a toxic word. <laughs> All of that to say that, like, I kind of had a, I kind of wondered whether or not that shift for Paramore helped them or hurt them in the mm. eyes of rock music fans. Um, my suspicion is that a lot of people would have turned away from them. I think that, like, when this song came out, a lot of the fan reception to the release of the song was kind of like, oh, yeah, I love this. I love everything that Paramore does but I hope this isn't what the album sounds like. Mm. You know, I think that that was the general sentiment around after laughter from fans was like, Oh, I, yeah, of course I like this. I love Paramore. Paramore is great, but I hope that they do what they have always been doing, which Mm. to me is again, representative of that kind of inflexibility about Mm. rock music. It's kind of it's it's very ironic to me that rock music is this inflexible genre that's so strictly defined, you know? Yeah, <clears throat> that it's the most real, it's the most authentic, and yet it can never innovate. That it just and... has to be a particular thing. Like I remember throughout the course of the 2000s and the 2010s, I think I've commented on this in my multiple Katy Perry disparagement comments where, you know, Katy Perry, maybe Katy Perry didn't bring about the rock apocalypse, but she's definitely like a bellwether for Mm -hmm. like the end of rock music. Yeah. Because, and you know, other rock musicians throughout the 2000s commented on this, like Dave Grohl talks about it a lot where he was just missing rock music as a genre like the the elements that people traditionally define as being essential to rock music you know a distorted guitar um you know a live drum track you know screeching vocals like all these things that are kind of you know stereotypically perhaps associated with rock music were gradually disappearing you know when you have acts like maroon five that like never seemingly never replaced their drummer after he retired. Mm-hmm, <laughs> they mm-hmm. just replaced him with like a drum machine. Mm-hmm. You know, Oh, interesting fact I learned. Uh, our last episode, we talked about Cher and I Paralyze, written oh. by John Farrar. Mm-hmm. John Farrar's son is the touring drummer from Maroon 5. Oh. <laughs> just, I don't know, okay. I just thought that was funny. Okay. So it bridges the gap. I was like, oh, yeah. Bridging the gap between our two non consecutive Oh, no, they are consecutive episodes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, What was I saying? You were talking about rock and like missing these things and like the new oh, pop yeah, yeah. rock play you know, don't I, ever really get to rock. So the, I don't know. I have a hard time feeling bad about it. Because like what is rock music to your point? You asked earlier when we were talking about this, like is this rock when we were asking about this song? And it's yeah. Like, I don't know because – what you know what is rock like if rock music is sort of the the pop if it started out being the pop vehicle for like youth counterculture like what rock music represents at its best is like a rebellion against something Mm -hmm. whether you think about you know little richard creating rock music in you know the 50s as like a rebellion against what was considered acceptable popular music prior to that. Or if you think about um, like punk rock emerging as a response to like the kind of like corporate arena rock that was becoming so prevalent and formulaic in the seventies. Or even if you think about um, grunge an alternative rock of the nineties emerging as a response to something else, you know, like there's always um there's always like a, a counterculture aspect to rock music at its best. I think that once rock 
music becomes popular, the basis of what makes it cool in the first place is then eliminated. And mm-hmm. then at that, at which point the clock is just ticking for rock music to die again. Yeah. I mean, it's just your own, it's your own, the individual artists sort of like holding to this imagined idea of authenticity. Yeah. Like, but it's also, you know, it's also the point of difference from pop. It's right? also like the act of, it's also the act of like rock musicians rebelling and defining a sound that is individually and uniquely theirs, mm-hmm. which then becomes popular. Mm-hmm. And then the music industry attempts to replicate something that is popular because it has never been done before. And that's where where I think you do get like carbon copies of carbon copies that just become worse and worse and worse. I think I've talked about this with like other rock acts that like, you know, I remember when Pearl Jam was really big that people got really, really cynical really fast about bands like Stone Temple Pilots or Bush or bands of that era that just felt like um, major label carbon copies like the major labels went out after Pearl Jam hit it big and mm-hmm. they were all like we need to find our Pearl Jam where yeah. are we going so they so they started really looking around for other bands that then they could promote as the next big thing when that's like the opposite of what that music is really about I mean yeah it's 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 the problem of like trying to succeed in, like in the music industry as an artist right I mean it's 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 capitalism <laughs> it's capitalism and then cuz it happens then, in pop and then and then when we end but I think that when you do it with pop music there's like less of a posturing about it pop there's music less it, of a posturing but there's still like that taint to it there's a taint but I uh, <laughs> it's like the ho- like no, what is hoku ho to Britney Spears, right? She's like a a copy of a copy of a copy. Yeah, but I feel like at least with pop artists, your cards are all out on the table from the yeah, get. True, you're never true. you're never hiding posturing. behind the guise of like this is truly something yeah. new and unique. I think that like because true, what is Hoku Ho doing today? But like I think when you get rock music carbon copies, that's where you get like Nickelback. Yeah. Not to disparage Nickelback to anyone that loves Nickelback, but Nickelback is terrible. Or Creed. And Creed. But like Nickelback, doesn't Nickelback still make music today? I think so. And it's still the same music it was 20 well, it's years like, ago. Um, it's like Train. Like Adam was talking about how there was like an, an interview with Train and they were talking about like their hard living days on tour and just like their they're like drunken escapades, like drunken drug fueled escapades. And we're like, train? Like, train? Like, Is that the Drops of Jupiter band? Yes. Oh, in Virginia. And you're just like, w- these people get drunk on this idea of what being a rock star is. <laughs> you're like, what? Who's doing this to train? But, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the point being that like the irony of rock music being one of the most like preserved and amber mm-hmm. genres of music, you know, I think it's, 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 it's one of the genres of music that requires entire upheavals for its revival. You know, mm-hmm. I think that whenever you see rock music kind of surge to the forefront of popularity again, it's because someone decided to do something different. Otherwise you do really get the bands that are touring with the same music mm-hmm. for two decades. Mm-hmm unchanging like unchanging and like almost like defiant against change Mm -hmm. this is where i devolve into um gossip mongering conspiracy theorist version of myself because you mean your true self my true self my true (laughs) self comes out because Honest to God, when I was thinking about this song, when I added this song to my playlist for consideration for um, the podcast, I had a preconceived notion about what I thought the problem with Paramore was. And it has to do mm-hmm. with like a lot of the gossip um, and interpersonal problems that surround the band throughout their time together. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I mentioned this briefly when I was talking about their bio, is that between the time that they form until 
even up until the time when they make this album in 2017, the personnel for the band, the lineup of the band itself changes quite frequently, often with a lot of drama that is aired publicly. Um, In their early formative years, they have kind of a rotating cast of people um, that come in and out of the band, but the main three are typically Haley Williams, Josh Farrow, and Zach Farrow. Um, in and around 2010 or 2011, um, it is announced that Zach Farrow and Josh Farrow are no longer in the band. Um, the statement comes from the remaining members of Paramore. And as a type of retribution, Josh and Zach Farrow opt to make their own statement right after the fact that kind of refutes a lot of the statements that are being made. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is where, you know, Josh and Zach Farrow first make the claims that like Paramore is a manufactured pop enterprise. It's not this quote unquote real rock band in the way that all of us were kind of mm-hmm. brought to believe. Um, you know, and, and I think that in the public eye that does damage the reputation of Paramore because up to that point, a lot of that information wasn't really talked about very publicly. The fact that, yeah, like Haley Williams had a record deal from 13, a development deal. And yes, Atlantic records wanted her to become like a top 40 pop star, but she opted to go the route of like putting together a band. Um, you know, one of the things that the Farrell brothers say, um, when they come forward, after being kind of unceremoniously let go from the band is that they were always treated like employees. Like it was always about Haley Williams and never about the band. And that, you know, her father was driving them around on tour when they were touring together and that he was constantly treating them like they were expendable. Like if they, if they, if they set a foot out of line, like they could be replaced super easily. And so not just undercutting the idea of Paramore as, you know, a quote unquote real rock band, but also kind of like making Haley Williams seem like not the nicest person, mm-hmm. which I think like in my mind that undercut the credibility of Paramore a lot. What I didn't know is that like after this happened with between Haley Williams and the Pharaoh brothers, that's when like Paramore actually had their biggest radio hits. <laughs> I think that when it comes to this idea of the acrimonious relationship between the different members of the band and the rotating cast of characters that come in and out of it, it brings up the question that I think is prevalent with a lot of rock bands, that being like, who is the linchpin in a rock band? What is the collection of ingredients that makes up the true essence of a rock band, so to speak? So like... I think it affects pop music a little bit less like with destiny's child, for example, what ingredient can you remove from destiny's child before it is no longer destiny's child? Like probably Beyonce. You take Beyonce out of the mix. Destiny's child is no longer destiny's child, but uh, you remove Latoya, you remove Latavia, you remove Farah. You even remove Kelly and Michelle and (laughs) the thing keeps going. Yeah. So it's like, it's like that type of question about like, even like pussycat dolls. You think, of course, Nicole Scherzinger is pussycat dolls. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like with rock bands, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it was maybe not a foregone conclusion with Paramore that Haley Williams was Paramore. I think that for a lot of people, the departure of the Pharaoh brothers and kind of like the treatment of these other band members as somewhat expendable kind of drew into question, like what the true heart of the band was. And I think that that's just an interesting question to think about with rock bands in general, where most bands have gone through lineup changes and whether or not that has affected the perception of the band itself is debatable. Mm -hmm. You know, Van Halen, David Lee Roth left Van Halen and was replaced by Sammy Hagar. Mm-hmm. even though, I mean, in my mind, it's, it's usually like the singer that defines the sound of a band, but yeah, like Van Halen journey queen to a certain extent, Chicago, I guess they've all gone through these personal changes, including their lead singer disappearing. Um, Peter Gabriel left Genesis and Genesis carried on with Phil Collins, you know? 
I think that's an interesting thing when the linchpin for a band isn't necessarily the vocalist. Sometimes it's like yeah. the musicians involved, especially with rock music. Yeah. Cause like Fleetwood Mac, we talked about like, was a completely different band in the sixties versus the seventies. You know, when you have Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham and Christy McVie all coming in, the main linchpin was Mick Fleetwood, who was the drummer. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, you don't think about that. You just like, as a person who didn't know that, right. Like I just assumed Fleetwood Mac was those five I mentioned. Um, or four I mentioned, but, um, you know, going all the way back. Yeah. And with pop music, it's absolutely different, right? Because the vocalist does kind of seem to, usually the main Define vocalist the sound. defines the sound <clears throat> and the the image. Uh, you know, there are obviously exceptions. Like if, if, if Mick Jagger left the Rolling Stones, would they still be the Rolling Stones? Probably not. Probably not. But then, and that's the thing, is like, I wouldn't have thought that, Van Halen could be Van Halen without David Lee Roth. To be honest, I I don't know. I don't know that I know the difference. Uh, oh, you well, I don't. I don't listen to the music before. Like you know the Sammy Hagar era music, though, right? No, I don't. I mean, I know the name. It's different. It's di- yeah. it's it's different. Yeah, I and it, I mean, and it really, begs rock the question. Was not really my genre, and it it begs the question of like what what is the combination of ingredient ingredients that actually make the band. You know, Veruca Salt, who I did a whole episode on, um, Louise Post actually carried on as Veruca Salt Mm -hmm. after the departure of all the other three members of the band. And the band was never the same. It wasn't Mm -hmm. the same band at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. Versus, say, like Smashing Pumpkins, Mm -hmm. Billy Corgan has carried on throughout the years as Smashing Pumpkins with a host of different people and, you know, different people coming and going to varying degrees of success, but I don't think that there's ever been a question that like Billy Corgan could carry on as smashing pumpkins for as long as he wanted to, regardless of who was on that ride with him. And I don't know if that was the case with Haley Williams and Paramore. I think that, and and this is the thing too. I think it, it draws back into like an issue of sexism a little bit, because I think that there always was this idea that like Haley Williams is fake. She wanted to be a pop star she wasn't a real member of the band. She's an interloper. I think that there's the constant attempts to like try and cut her down. I think yeah. in no small part because she's a woman. I think I think you see that in a lot of things. I mean, it's it's like, yeah, because especially in pop, where it's like, okay, manufactured or not, like someone has to deliver that vocal and perform that way and connect with people. And you can't manufacture that. Mm-hmm. Right? Like maybe it's not always the music they wanted to do or they didn't grow up playing it in their garage or whatever, but like they're selling it and they're, you know, they're out there performing it and you believe it a hundred percent. I mean, it's, you know, you can't take that away. I mean, that that's also part of it, right? Like it goes back to that. What is authentic? Like, what do we expect from our artists? Do they have to write and produce and do everything themselves in order to be, you know, taken seriously. I mean, you look at Whitney Houston and Cher, who we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, but like <laughs> they never wrote a, I mean, most of them didn't write a song in their lives, right? Yeah. Like they're art, they're not artists, they're singers. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's the thing is that like when it comes to rock music versus pop music, it's like, I mean, in as much as pop musicians are criticized for credibility or in as much as pop musicians are sometimes just perceived as people that come into the studio and sing and don't actually, you know, do any of the creation themselves. It gives them a little bit more leeway in terms of, you know, Celine Dion wants to do this album or that album. Like she can do it. Cause she, yeah. well, one, cause she's Celine Dion, but also because, you know, I don't think that she's as strictly defined as an yeah. artist, you know, mm-hmm. she can kind of, have that leeway to explore. Mm-hmm. So I had all these suspicions about why I thought this song didn't perform well, but you know what? As I was researching this, I realized that there's a really simple reason that this song didn't perform well. And that's that throughout the course of the 2010s, rock music was on a sharp decline in pop music. I think in part because of a lot of the reasons that we've talked about in, you know, the past half hour Mm -hmm. in terms of rock music, just not evolving with the times to the point where it was no longer representative of young people, Mm -hmm. you know? And interestingly enough in the year 2017, when this song came out, that was actually the first year that hip hop and R and B officially became more popular 
than rock music in the United States. So that was the first time that like all the metrics that they track for sales and airplay for all these types of music, I think it's the first time that rock dropped down to like 23% of the market mm. share versus like hip hop and R&B had like 29%. Mm. And I think part of like the youth culture appreciating like a countercultural message that a lot of the stuff that we were, a lot of the stuff that we were experiencing in the 2010s, like rap music, especially or hip hop and R and B like kind of voiced that decade in a way that rock music was no longer voicing that Mm -hmm, decade. mm -hmm. I think I read some think pieces that were talking about how like, you know, rock music for better or for worse is perceived as like white men complaining about their problems. And Mm -hmm. that's like, not what the youth of America were thinking about in 2017. It doesn't, it doesn't hold space for people outside of that experience to express their, to express anything. Yeah. And that's, that's by design in most (laughs) cases, right? Like it has been, you talked about them being gatekeepers. It's like, that has been part of the thing. And so it kind of killed itself. Yeah. And I think that like the other things that helped like hip hop R and B, and dance and uh, electronic dance music to kind of, you know, take over our mind, our cultural mind at that time was the proliferation of like streaming media that mm. suddenly like, you know, where rock was traditionally like an album sales oriented genre mm-hmm. in an era when, you know, album sales are declining, but like streams of individual songs are just blowing up. Like that's where hip hop R&B artists dropping a mixtape or maybe a single track here and there could really, um, you know, supplant rock music on those charts. Mm-hmm. Once streaming was, cons- was legitimized and also like the spirit of, so I think, I think about like the spirit of punk music, the spirit of garage bands of the nineties. I think that part of, part of the spirit of those movements was the idea that these were people that just got together in their garages, in their bedrooms and made music. Like it it didn't, it was not, it's origin story is not in the studio with a major label. It was outside of the system. It was outside of the system. And I think that like when you get into the 2010s and you get into um, digital streaming, but you also get into like digital music production. I think that like, the the spirit of punk rock the spirit of grunge is actually upheld by kind of like bedroom producers and the Mm -hmm. idea that all these people can be making their own music from their bedrooms it has the ethos of rock music without actually being rock music itself yeah and i think that's why when you get into the late 2010s that innovative music the music that excites young people maybe the music that has the most to say about the time that we're living in doesn't sound like rock music but it has the spirit of rock music if that makes any sense yeah no it's it's a rock you know it's rock by another name i mean for for all intents and purposes it is we're listening to rock now right it's just yeah not called that because rock is defined as an old thing (laughs) and i think that i mean and and i think and i hope that what this signals is just that rock music will re-emerge as something different to be totally current about this. I think it was just like last week that Haley Williams announced that Paramore were getting, they were getting back together to start recording their next album. And, you know, I think that like maybe with the pressure of pop music off rock musicians can create whatever the hell type of music they want to make. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, I think I, I, I think that there's a there's a genuine trap behind the idea that, like, once you become a popular rock act, you need to keep making popular music versus when rock music is unpopular. It frees rock musicians up to make good music and not popular music. I, yeah, I, I would say that's probably true of all the genres as well. Like yeah. You see that in pop as well. You see that in, you know, people just innovating in general. They you know and and we've seen this with some of these artists when we talk about their flops you know having a flop kind of freed that it broke the momentum of success in some ways and they were able to do something else they wanted right yeah um, you know it sometimes it's it's as successful for them and other times like they miss the success right and so they go back to like the tried and true formula but yeah yeah so anyway all of that to say in closing in closing on hard times by paramore 
after having this conversation, I think what I really respect about this song is that to me, it represents a, a rock band that wasn't afraid to just evolve their sound. Mm. I think it's mm-hmm. actually a rarity mm-hmm. for among, rock, ama- among rock musicians to be open to shifting with the times, or maybe you're just a different person than you were when you were a 17 year old girl from Tennessee. Yeah, I mean, maybe you're Bruce Springsteen and you want to do a Jeep commercial and a Levi's commercial and sell your, or I guess it was just Jeep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, listen to Hard Times. Um, the other song, in case Hard Times did not flop hard enough for you, um, the fourth single from this album was a song called Rose Colored Boy. Same vibe. It's a dance song mm-hmm. about... Wanting to, like, the whole vibe of the song is like, just let me be miserable. Mm -hmm. Why does everything have to be, like, look on the bright side? Let me feel miserable, packaged in this, like, upbeat, cheerful, deceptively cheerful song. I'll put it on the playlist, too. And the playlist is excellent, so look for that. It's a whole vibe. It's a whole vibe. I enjoyed the playlist a lot. I feel like you have another bullet point you'd like to talk about. Every episode, I feel like I try to follow a a train of thought that gets derailed. And then at the end, in the chaos of my derailed train, I then pick up on something that I'm like, oh, I find the track. Well, or just something that's even more off the rails. Okay. That I should have said. I don't know. I think I got it all. I feel like you did. I mean, at least all the things you previewed. Oh, you know what? You know what I didn't mention? This is my moment of derailment. So my moment of derailment. (laughs) I didn't mention the whole drama. So the whole drama with Paramore that I wanted to talk about that I thought was going to be central to this whole episode. And it wasn't at all was the fact that like around the time that like the lineup changes started happening the statements for like the lineup changes to Paramore were always like, well, this person's values didn't align with ours. And even when the Pharaoh brothers left, there was this whole idea that like, well, it became clear that we don't have the same values. And I think mixed with the Christianity angle of it. And I mean, Josh Pharaoh in his live journal account of the breakup actually quoted bible verses there were like there was there was a song lyric that he objected to because it basically was like well this song lyric is in contradiction to this bible verse mm-hmm. so it was very that when they broke up now when zach farrow rejoined the band and then they released after laughter shortly after that fans had resurfaced these statements by josh farrow that called homosexuality a perversion and compared it to pedophilia and when these statements resurfaced Haley Williams at this point who is you know reunited with Zach Farrow as part of Paramore she makes this kind of you know it's is it a subtweet when she does stuff like this where it's just basically like well now you there's there's a reason that there's only three people in Paramore yes that's a sub like she doesn't really You mention it without mentioning the person. She doesn't directly like link to this statement that her Mm -hmm. ex-bandmate has made, but she does seemingly out of the blue, like out of context, you'd be like, why is she saying this? And you're like, oh, you have to look for like, this is why she said it. But she basically says, there's a reason there are only three people left in Paramore. Surprise haters. It ain't because of me. And I think that that like, it kind of vindicated her in my eyes in a multitude of ways. Because I had up until that point really thought of them as like, oh, is this like a homeschooled Christian band? Mm-hmm. You know, with whatever uh, pre- preconceptions and misgivings I personally have about mm-hmm. that genre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to project mm-hmm. that onto anyone else. No, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, again, I didn't even know it was a genre. You would know way more about them, like even as a casual listener than I do. Like I didn't know any of that. So, well, but like, yeah, but like when you hear it, you're like, oh, like that morsel. Uh huh of information forms a a near complete picture in my mind when I'm like these devout Christians met while being homeschooled in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, 
Yeah, I'm, sure. I'm, no, I get I'm, it. I'm, whether fair or not, I'm, my mind filled in a lot of blanks, and all of you know, thirteen years later, <laughs> for Haley Williams to vindicate herself, both like in terms of that opinion, in terms of like you know, you're always worried that someone's going to be like Katie homophobia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, vindicating herself from that, but then also to basically say like, hey, like remember the last decade when I was being blamed for all of the interpersonal turmoil in this band and like people were suing me and they were making accusations that I'm like inauthentic or that I'm a manufactured pop star. Like remember all of that, like keep that in mind now that like there were actual other reasons that all of this was going mm-hmm. on behind the scenes so anyway that was my visitation on a train derailment uh <laughs> all, it's like all the things that i wanted to say but couldn't fit in mm. um but anyway listen to hard story time. of your life i know listen to hard times this it's a good epi- this episode was a hard time when i say that <laughs> it's truth <laughs> You just have so many thoughts. I do. You're like that girl in Mean Girls. You just have a lot of feelings. I do. I am that girl. <laughs> like, you don't even go here. I don't go here. Oh, my God. It's so true. I'm going to put a gif of that girl up on our Instagram if I ever log into our Instagram account ever again. <laughs> well, in the meantime, <laughs> we'd like to give a special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. Songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Um, we will also put up a playlist of the songs in here, including the aforementioned rock songs that are rock bands that attempt, attempted dance songs, which I got a lot of enjoyment out of. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Check us out on social at Flop Redeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Flop Redeemer. And as always, email us at flopredeemer at gmail.com. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.